Ladies and gentlemen, could we come to order? You have confirmed uh, the, uh, my practice never to give a break in class because a 10-minute break becomes a 20-minute break. And um, students pay a lot of money to study with us. Um, welcome to our session on pragmatism, philosophical analysis, and science influences and interactions. Um, I, uh, I'm reminded of the uh, gentleman who produced an Academy Award winning film who was asked, um, how do you go about producing an Academy Award winning film? And he said, I get myself a talented scriptwriter, a skilled director, great actors, and then I get out of the way, uh, which is what I intend to do. Um, my only problem is that there are uh, different documents on the order of the speakers today. We are dealing with um, um, a, a J document and an E document. Uh, one uh, document lists the speakers in alphabetical order, M, O, and S, and the other document lifts, lists them in inverse alphabetical order, S, O, and M. And um, we, we uh, I, I function here as R. <laughs> and as R, I have determined uh, in consultation with the authors, with the three speakers, that we will follow the inverse uh, alphabetical order. Um, and uh, we will hear from Professor Samuelson, Professors Oaks, and, uh, professors, and Professor Morgan in, in that order. The uh, topic is pragmatism, philosophical analysis, and science, influences and interactions. I've also been told that the tripartite um, title does not necessarily reflect the interests of the three speakers. Uh, they are all three speaking on all three topics, or uh, two or one or none of the three, as the um, <laughs> as the uh, spirit moves them. Um, the um, biographies and the accomplishments of our uh, teachers today are, of course, in the back of the pamphlet. Uh, please welcome Professor Samuelson. Can it be heard? Yes, okay. Okay, uh, thank you, Neil. Uh, I, I have a seven-hour paper prepared uh, from, from which I'm going to do uh, selections, and I prefer not to read a paper because I'm not a good reader, uh, so then you won't know anything. So I'll risk uh, talking for the time I have, which means I will misstate things, but what I say will be clearer than if I read it and was more accurate. Uh, and then maybe during the discussion, misstatements can be uh, corrected. Uh, not, not everybody received uh, the questions that Alan Little put, put to us. So I think in some cases, it's, it's not cl clear that we're answering the questions that were given to us. I think that was particularly a problem uh, uh, last, last night, where what we got was a wonderful Straussian interpretation of Shakespeare, which was right on what we were supposed to be doing, but, but, but it was very difficult to tell that. 
uh, uh, because you didn't have the question. So, so I want to read the question that, Al, that Alan gave, or, or paraphrase the question, because I'll, I'll, have the, I'll, I'll have the same kind of problem with what I'm doing, uh, too. Uh, the, 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 the Alan's statement had two premises built into it. One, there has been a renaissance of Jewish philosophy in America. That's premise one. And premise two is that all of us have contributed to this renaissance. Uh, I'm not going to argue with it. Uh, um, Even if it's not true, I wish it's true. Uh, You know the story. I I, I hate to take the time to tell story, but it's one story which you maybe already know. Uh, It's it's, it's 1933 in Berlin. Uh, Just when Hitler is about to be elected as the leader, and a Jew is walking on the street, and he notices in Berlinplatz there's another Jew sitting there reading a Nazi newspaper. And he goes up to him and he says, why are you reading a Nazi newspaper? To which he says, you know, I, the world is so terrible, and everything just is falling around all about us. But I pick up this paper, and I read, the Jews run the banks, the Jews control the world. It just makes me feel so good. <laughs> Uh, so that's sort of how I feel about uh, this being, there being a renaissance of Jewish philosophy in America and that we have all contributed to it. Uh, but but, but, but I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later. The, the, the critical question, if I have time, is what is the role of the American context broadly construed with a strong emphasis on the phrase broadly construed uh, played in each of our thought? Uh, And then in giving an answer to this question, we were asked to stress American philosophy and politics uh, and to talk about the social and cultural context. Now, uh, talking about politics is not a major interest of mine, and and I'll talk a bit about that. I'm not in political science. Of all the sciences, I don't have a great deal of interest in political science. And most of my interest has been in the physical sciences. And I'll talk about that, but I will relate it as much as I can as an amateur in relationship to political science. That means you have to be kind to me, see, because, uh, because political science is not my field. Uh, uh, but I will relate it as much as I can. I'm, I'm going I'm to talk about three sets of things insofar as I have time to do it. But when I run out of my half an hour, I'll take five minutes at the end to tell you the conclusions. Maybe I should tell you the conclusions first, because I might not get to them. So, 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 so what I'm going to do is, is, is tell you my, my, my conclusions first. It's totally artificial, in my case, uh, to separate the American and the Jewish. It's impossible intellectually, and it's impossibly personally. Uh, uh, Let me take it at a personal level first. I am totally American. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, uh, but it's who I am. And as much as I would want to be or not to be an American, I can't be wherever I live. I've lived a lot of places. Uh, In Israel, in Germany, it makes no difference. Wherever I am, I'm an American. Uh, The same thing is true of me as a Jew. 
I could convert to Christianity. I could become a Buddhist. I would never be anything but Jewish. And the notion I could be anything but Jewish is absurd. Third, the two are totally immigrated in me. There is no part of my Jewish thinking that is not Jewish. There's no part of my Jewish thinking that is not American. And there's no part of my American thinking that's not Jewish. And I'm totally comfortable and at home with being both. Now, if that reflects at all, if I in any way am an example of what it means to be an American Jew, which I'm not sure of, uh, then that already points to a difference between thinking as an American Jewish philosopher, thinking as an American Jew, and thinking as a German Jewish thinker. Because my sense that at least among the German Jewish intellectuals, almost without exception, or uh, I won't say all, because people got trouble before saying all, so I said for, for the most part, Jewish was always a point of convolution. It was painful. It was always something to struggle with. And the most important Jewish philosophers of the German experience, and by that I mean early 20th century, grew out of this painful struggle with being Jewish. Many of them went through Christianity. Many of them converted to Christianity. Some of them converted to Christianity and came back. It was always there. And I can symbolize that in lots of ways. Heine's, what, he's earlier than the early 20th century, but he fits. Heine's wonderful poem about the Jewish hospital of Hamburg, where he says the hospital was created to cure three diseases, physical disease, mental disease, and Jewishness. And of the three, the third was the hardest to cure. That says to me everything about German-Jewish intellectual life. Uh, it's not a negation. It's a question. No, Heine says it can't be cured. So he's not denying his Jewishness. He's affirming his Jewishness in the statement, but with all the pain and suffering that entails. Uh, an example on another letter is that I've lived in, I've lived in Hamburg, and, and I'd be at a dinner party, and someone comes to me and say, you know I'm Jewish. As if he was telling me something important. And, and I would say, that's very nice. And, and then he would sit there very proud of himself, having, having said that to me. And then I'd say, what do you do about it? And he said, I think about it all the time. And that, I think, is ultimately the difference between all of us, or I think I can say all, all of us who are coming to Jewish philosophy as Americans, as opposed to our intellectual predecessors in the first part of the 20th century who came to it as Germans. Now, that's the most important difference. Beyond that, now let me take it all back. The influence of German-Jewish thinking on our thinking goes way beyond the things that we're aware of. 
to begin with. Almost everything we read as secondary sources are German, is German. And most of the stuff that we read in English are written by scholars who were trained on German texts. So in that sense, all of our thinking is German. Uh, some of us have been influenced by Whitehead. I guess he's sort of American. I still think of him more as English. Uh, some of us have been influenced by Kaplan. I don't know if he's a philosopher. He's certainly a Jewish thinker. I, I don't know if we want to call him a philosopher. Uh, Kaplan is probably, to me, the clearest American intellectual influence on all of us. But everybody else we study and everybody else we care about as philosophers are all Germans. Certainly in my case. I won't talk for all of us anymore. Certainly the influences insofar as literature goes on my thinking are either pre-German or German, but none of them are American. Uh, uh, Jewishly, uh, Jewishly, they lived in the ancient Near East and the Muslim world and in Christian Europe, mostly in Provence. Uh, the interpretations of them, again, are all from Germans, and the intellectual influences on us are all Germans. Those are the obvious ways. But having said that, I read all those sources. I read, I read Kant. I read Hegel. I read the German Romantics. As an American, I see them through an American eyes. I interpret them through American eyes. Now, how is it American? I'm, I'm, uh, I'll give you a bad answer and a good answer. The bad answer comes from my, my friend Lori Zoloff. Uh, uh, Lori gave a paper for a conference we were running where, where she was making the distinction between, at a sociological level, between Americans and Europeans, distinguishing American thinkers from people like Walter Benjamin. Uh, and, and, and I only quote it because Stephen Schwarzschild said in different words, less entertaining, the same thing. Uh, maybe I'll put it in Stephen's terms. We were about to have a conference in Germany, or we had been invited through the Academy for Jewish Philosophy to do a conference in Germany with German thinkers on Rosenstein. Uh, uh, actually, it was uh, 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 schmidt Kowarczyk who invited us to a conference, a major conference on Rosenstein. And Stephen said he was not going to go. And I said, why aren't you going to go? He says, I don't want to be around those Europeans. I said, why don't you want to be around those Europeans? He is a European and never ceased to be a German. Uh, he said, they never talk straight. And Americans can't deal with that. Because Americans are incapable of complexity. Uh, and, and that's sort of what Laura was saying, too, that, that there, there is to our democratic-style life in this kind of style a simplicity to us. Uh, we like to reduce things, and I'm talking about myself now, we like to reduce things to, to, the, to its simplest element and then 
focus on that. Uh, we think we can say whatever we want. And that's where Leo, it, it's really a Straussian position, I'm saying. If you remember the persecution in the art of writing, the problem of we Americans, he said, is we think everybody was born in a democracy. So we think when people say things, they mean what they say. How many democracies have there been in history? Why do you think anybody from a non-democracy would ever say in writing what he means, let alone in speech? So on one hand, I love, I, I adore the simplicity, the freedom of the simplicity that I have as an American, at least as long as it lasts. But I don't believe it will last forever. I think we are becoming as convoluted as the Europeans. And in becoming increasingly convoluted, we're becoming deeper, but, but, but at a, a great cost. Now, where do I get my American values from? Not from my reading. Well, I thought about that. One, it comes from being a reform Jew. Growing up as a reformed Jew that went to a religious school that taught me nothing but allowed me always to talk about ideas. And given the terrible public school I went to, which I hated with a passion, the only place in the world I found that I could talk about ideas was in my reform temple. So I intimately associate doing philosophy with Reform Judaism, which for most of my life was the only Judaism I know, at least until I got to the Hebrew Union College. So that's one source. Another source, and maybe more important source, are movies. When I think about the things that form my character, Probably the movies had more to do with that than anything else, particularly Westerns. And that's for good and bad. What I came away from that experience is the following. This touches on the political science part of it. One, I generally don't like politicians. I operate because of the influence of the movies on the assumption that people who seize power do it to do bad things with it. And the good people never have power. That was because the villains were always the people who had power. The other lesson I learned for the movement is you're always going to be a loner because the heroes were always loners. They didn't even have wives. And they did what they did and rode off someplace else to do their good. Three, doing the good has almost no connection with accomplishment. So all of that from the movies, I think, shapes my personality into wanting to avoid political entanglements to pursue what I think is good 
and always to try to do what I think of good with no expectation of success ever because you don't get it in this world. And then I thought, as I grew up and learned Jewish sources, it was there in Jewish sources. Uh, I, I mentioned the Kensiskin. There's not going to be a lot of time to talk about it. How profoundly I disagreed with almost everything he said. And we've been friends for about 30 years, and I didn't know I disagreed with you so much. Uh, and so, so maybe it's something that has grown over the period. But... Ken believes that you can have ideals that are achievable. I think that's astounding for him to think that. I think that any ideal that can be achieved is not worthy of the status of an ideal. In fact, it's even a form of idolatry. Okay? Now, I can give you wonderful Jewish texts on it if I select them as Ken does. Now, the main text I want to refer to, and this is all I'm going to say about politics, and then I'm going to talk about what I care about. Um, Maimonides, at the beginning of the, of the Mishnah Torah, in, in, in the Hilchot Yusodeha Torah, says that what Judaism is, to paraphrase, Judaism is a way. Halacha means a way. And the way is to reach oneness with God. The ultimate commandment is to love and fear God. It's the same thing. That's the ultimate commandment. And you only achieve it through knowledge, through physics. You study physics to know God. And you'll never achieve it. You'll never achieve it. Because you're a human being. And it's the only goal that's worth pursuing. And then he says, if you go, not in the same place, you go to a town where there are no good people, what should you do about it? Move out of town. Live in the desert. Better to live around no one than to live with bad people people. That's why I've never been interested in a university administration. <laughs> uh, and so far, I've been sufficiently blessed by God that they haven't noticed me, and I don't have to notice them. May it last another 20 years. Now, I will begin. Uh, <laughs> those were my conclusions. In answer to the questions, one is a general philosophical answer to, to Alan's question, and then there are two parts that deal uh, specifically with my thought. Uh, on the history of the 20th century, the question is, given that there's a kind of renaissance, how could I interpret that renaissance to be true? The, the, the interpretation of the renaissance to be true, renaissance Jewish philosophy, is there have been post-Six-Day War Lots and lots of Jewish publications, uh, philosophical publications. And, and in that sense, it's true. I don't know how many people read it, uh, except, you know, beyond the people who write it. 
uh, and not all of them. Uh, I, I don't know how much read all the things we write. But there really has been a lot. And at one point, I was going to go through a list of all the people. And it's a big list, and I would use the time, of all the people who are writing in, in Jewish philosophy, in a sense, all of whom should be here. I have a list of about 40 people, which is large. Uh, and then when we get to the published versions of this, I, I'll, I'll present all those people here. But, but that focuses around, I think, three major events, both happening post-Six-Day War. One is the work of Will Dietrich Schmidt-Kovarczyk, uh, who created a major conference on Rosenzweig in which almost everybody who was anybody and who became anybody in Jewish philosophy was at that conference in Kassel. Now, I'm going to have another thing going with it. In all three cases, I should tell you the three cases, Schmitz-Kovarczyk's organization of Rosenzweig studies in Kassel. Two, Rafi Jaspi at the Open University of the Hebrew University ran over a period of four years through the Open Universities wonderful, wonderful conferences in Jewish philosophy where, again, Almost everybody who did anything in the field came there, participated in, and including people who came afterward. And the fourth was the organization about 19, in the late 1970s of the Academy for Jewish Philosophy in America. So three major occasions. Academy for Jewish Philosophy in the United States, uh, the, the JASPI conferences, Open University conferences in Israel, and, and Schmitz-Kovarczyk's conferences uh, uh, in, in, in Germany. Now, in all three cases, what was intended to be accomplished wasn't. And this is also a judgment on political science. What, what, was, what was intended to be accomplished was not. And what was accomplished was totally unexpected. And maybe better. So let me take those three cases. The money that made the meetings in Germany possible came from coal. Coal wanted to be able to arouse, to recreate among German youth patriotism. And he knew that in, in the eyes of the world, every time he attempted to generate the kind of patriotism that every other nation on earth takes for granted. Uh, he would be accused of being a Nazi. So he came up with the strategy that his real interest is he heard about Cohn's symbiosis of Judentum and Deutschtum. And, and, and on the basis of that, idealistic word, because it's not a reality word. On the, on the basis of that I, I, uh, idealistic work, he wanted to sell to, to the German people that without the inherent Jewishness in Germanness, Germany is not German. So that if he could sell that Germany, Germanness rather, is inherently Jewishness, he could again talk about German patriotism without the, the association. Nothing 
even remotely like that was accomplished from the conference. Uh, it was a wonderful example of government giving good money for bad purposes. And because the money was given for bad purposes, it still did the good. And the good that came from it is a revival not only of Rosenzweig studies, but a serious renaissance of study of Jewish thinking, Jewish intellectual accomplishments in 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, all coming out of the motivation of that misconceived but absolutely wonderful conference. That's the one example. The, the idea of the Open University Project was totally Zionist. The way Jaffe was able to get the funding for this from the Israeli government ran on the Zionist idea that with the creation of the Jewish state, all intellectual activity, Jewish intellectual, Jewish, would go on in Israel. So all the Jewish scholars from all over Galut, from the diaspora, would come and learn the wisdom from the scholars of the Hebrew University. I got five minutes. That was absurd. It was just because most of the people who were doing the teaching were Americans to the Israelis. But it was a major contribution to the development of focus in medieval Jewish studies. The third, and that's what I'll end with, was the Academy for Jewish Philosophy. That was started by David Silverman, by me, and David Bleich. And, and I'll tell you how it was picked, because it was totally misconceived. You get a reformed Jewish thinker, that's me, with a conservative Jewish thinker, that's David, and an orthodox Jewish thinker, that's Blythe, and we'll put together a group of people, because the only Jews that matter are Reform, Orthodox, and Conservative. And we'll have 15 people. Why 15? Because that's as many essays as you could get into a volume. And we'd pick these 15 people, and we would meet every year on a different subject. And in the course of the year, we would cover every important question, philosophical question, in Judaism. So we would do a series, let's say, let's say it would be 15 books. So we would do 15 books on the 15 subjects, and those would be the definitive statements on, on Jewish faith in the 20th century. Nothing like that happened. First of all, the 15 people didn't want to write papers every year. They said, you can't produce a paper every year? That's almost impossible. And then it started saying, can we have this person in it or that person? So we expanded to an organization that became about 140 people. I think at its highest level, 140 people. Uh, achieved nothing like what we thought we would achieve when, when, we, when we created it. But I think what we did do is provide a stimulus for all kinds of people to bring Jewish philosophy into existence, besides contributing significantly by a, to a lot of the books by a lot of people here, because we had 30 years of conversation. And I think all of us have influenced all of us, even though we've gone our different ways, uh, in an important way, and that was totally unexpected. So what does that prove? Life is an accident. 
And sometimes wonderful things come out of that accident. And the wonderful things coming out of that accident is called divine providence. And that's what my next book will be about. Thank you. My thanks to Norbert because his academy, and I always knew it as his academy for Jewish philosophy, brought me into Jewish philosophy. And so I'm very grateful. Um, my other thanks are to um, our organizer, Alan um, Middleman, because the one thing the academy didn't do, I think, is base its philosophic resources on this soil. Um, its resources tended to remain um, Aristotle and Kant, um, or Maimonides and, and Cohen Rosenzweig. So I, I thank you three, four, three quarters. Um, in medieval Spain, Jewish theology was framed primarily by Muslim reception of Aristotle and to some extent Plato. Modern German Jewish theology was primarily Kantian. But American Jewish philosophy has yet to frame itself sufficiently in terms of a distinctly American dis discourse, which means I would suggest that it has yet to address in a systematic way the social and intellectual conditions of Jewish life on this American soil. Most academic Jewish thinkers in the US and Canada, I guess, um, David, have instead tended to continue the vocabularies of German Jewish philosophy, or what has now become Franco-German philosophy. And most still scholars of Jewish thought, historians, intellectual historians on the whole, have tended to read Jewish thought through the lenses of Jewish Spain and Jewish Germany. This is not surprising, for as we learned last night, American Jewish thinkers are both literally and spiritually the children and grandchildren of European Jews and European Judaism. It may take another generation to reflect more of this local setting. For two, despite their longer life on this soil, American philosophers themselves have been reluctant to cut the European umbilical cords. Most are obsessed with English-Scottish-bred analysis with persistent whiffs of the old Vienna circle. The rest turn to continental philosophy, transcendental, which means phenomenological or postmodern. Why should the Jews be different? I have nothing negative to say about these foci, only that there is room for another one. The down-home, largely Boston and Chicago and Baltimore and New York-bred practices of American pragmatism. I won't recommend these as sources of Jewish truth, but as the best instruments of disciplined thinking about Torah and rabbinic tradition while we're on this American soil. To be sure, there are powerful arguments to be made about the power of these pragmatic instruments as successors to all the European disciplines of philosophy and habits of Jewish thought. I'm very moved by Leora Batnitsky's account last night of the, on the one hand, intellectual genius, on the other hand, irremediable internal tensions and contradictions in European Jewish thinking, which I think explains very much um, why this conference is so important it's time to acknowledge the power of our forebears. We base our thinking on their thought, but time to stop writing about them all the time, obsessively, 
and having graduate students do it again and again and again, I think where we're simply in our graduate teaching are often retarding the capacity for this generation to move on from those contradictory roots. And I'd argue, and I won't have time to argue it philosophically here today, and it would be too technical, I think, for the time, I'd argue that not only pragmatism, but certainly pragmatism, and therefore American, specifically American Jewish thought, offers one clear, logically grounded alternative and perhaps a means of resolving in one way those tensions that Leora brought out last night. But we haven't done much to do that. When I say we haven't done much, I mean we very academically focused Jewish thinkers. There are, however, a collection of rabbinically responsible Jewish thinkers uh, one or two great ones, I think, in each of what I'm going to call six denominations of Jewish life that have done this. So what I'm, going to, what I'm going to do today, instead of doing sort of my own technical work, which is to work on the logical foundations of American pragmatism as a resource for studying Jewish tradition, particularly um, scripture and Talmud. That's my own work. But what I'll do instead is look at what's already available, not so much in academic parlance, but in the, the work by philosophically informed thinkers who take primary responsibility in their work for the life of their denomination. So I'm going to focus on four of them because of alliteration. There are two Bs and two Ks. Um, the first two representing, I'm not saying that they are the essential member of a particular denomination, but each one is a solid participant in an American Jewish denomination and I think can be read as deeply expressive of pragmatic sources. So it's across the board. I'll spend um, half the time on Kaplan and Reconstructionism and Kedushin on behalf of my own subtradition, which is a conservative movement. Then two Bs, to um, Borowitz and Berkowitz. Um, Eliezer Berkowitz, I'll argue, is more pragmatic than we often read him as, particularly on his halachic work, and he'll represent orthodoxy, and Borowitz will represent pragmatism in uh, liberal or reform Judaism. I'll then comment on the end on uh, two other um, additional denominations, but I won't have time to, to talk about their heroes. All right? So... Um, an intellectual history of pragmatism already in rabbinically responsible, that is communally responsible, uh, Jewish thought. First, Mordecai Kaplan's Reconstructionist Pragmatism. Kaplan's work is influenced by pragmatic strains in post-Kantian uh, post thought on the continent, as well as by sources um, influenced by such more familiar pragmatic names as William James and John Dewey. But more than that, he breathes and exhales the general sentiment of pragmatism in American society, that history is not a home, but a resource for our efforts to solve problems confronting our lives and society today, that intellect is not a home, often forgotten on the continent, this one, that intellect is not a home, but a tool for problem solving, that tradition is a home, is a home, but the kind we are raised in and then move away from or within, like Abraham left Terach to chart the course of our own lives. 
Articulating this pragmatism Jewishly, Kaplan adds that the future is the home God will show us if we would only listen to his saving word and that Torah delivers this word, but only if we study it. To study Torah is for Kaplan to study how the rabbinic sages lived its values and to transform those values into appropriate rabbinic guidelines for our own time. In his terms, this is the work of transvaluing or revaluing Judaism. Within the limits of a very brief history, I want to focus on revaluation as a prime illustration of his pragmatism and on just one example of his study of Yom Kippur in the meaning of God in modern Jewish religion. In this text, Kaplan examines the major holy days of rabbinic Judaism as prototypes of the Jewish values that need to be transported to the context of Jewish life in America. And for him, transportation means transformation. Yom Kippur is, first of all, a Yom Tov, a holy day, the prototype of which is Shabbat. The rabbinic observance of Shabbat, he argues, is modeled on the biblical laws of observing a day of rest, Zechel Ma'asebreshit, in enactment of the order of creation, and Zechel Litziat Mitzrayim, an enactment of the going out of Egypt. But Kaplan suggests that the primary reason God gave the Jews Shabbat is for their salvation, to draw them palpably nearer him as the power that makes for salvation, his favorite phrase. Restating his method of analysis in anthropological terms, we could say that Kaplan reads the indigenous rabbinic accounts of Shabbat, emic accounts, as illustrating the analytic or comparative category, more generally, of practices that make for salvation. He's going to make that leap from particular indigenous practice to comparative practice as a means of articulating a concept that we can transport ourselves with. In other words, if we move, in his argument, from a rabbinic community in place X to the United States, how do we know how to observe what we did there but in new ways? His solution will be to, not unlike a phenomenological analysis, to identify the transportable values in that behavior and then reapply them here in ours. So for him, serving salvation is the most important um, transporter. The specific salvation reflected on Yom Kippur, he believes, uh, is as following. First, as far as the whole 10 days, on Rosh Hashanah, individual members of the people Israel reflect on their origins. And this self-reflection opens them to recognizing and confessing their sins, which means recognizing their distance from the ideals and goals that define their creation. Yom Kippur then discloses and enacts the end of this confession, kapara, or seeking reconciliation, and by way of it, shuva, or repentance, readopting the goals of creation as the categorical imperatives that should govern our own lives. It is imperative to insert this Kantian term here, to please Ken, but also because for Kaplan, as for the Stoic Kant, Stoic Kant, the laws of our creation are the laws of ethics. Kaplan thus revalues kapara as a ritual of ethical self-purification, and that's a transportable value. For Kaplan, this revaluation renews Yom Kippur for what he considers modern Jews, for whom the admirable goal of moral self-purification appears, however, incommensurate 
his modern Jewish community does, with rabbinic Judaism's what he calls persistent sacramentalism. In other words, Kaplan's going to say that sacramentalism, the rabbi's focus on that priestly behavior, belonged there. We're going to take the fruit of it, this transvaluation, and perform it here without sacramentalization. He says this, in his view, ancient Israel itself gradually recognized that sin really means separation from the intrinsic purposes of one's own life, rather than from the inscrutable desires of an otherwise unknown God. But, so the Israelites got it, he thinks. But during the rabbinic era, he concludes, Israel simply lost this clarity, reinstituting the very sacramental conceptions of sin and repentance from which modern Judaism needs, like the ancient Israelites, to separate itself again. Of the classical American pragmatists, Charles Peirce, whom I work on, then William James and John Dewey, Kaplan's work most reflects the spirit of Dewey. Consider just one illustration. Kaplan and Dewey share, here's a term again, a stoic sense that values are in the world. You can study them empirically, since we observe them rather than constructing them. They both therefore resist the modern, academic, modern academy's effort to segregate realms of worldly fact um, and human value. That is, to segregate disciplines of natural science, or Naturwissenschaften, and of humanistic inquiry, Geisteswissenschaften. In other words, like Dewey, Kaplan believes that European thought indeed was beset by contradictory tendencies, and they were lent to Jewish continental thinkers. Among those tendencies was the insistence that we have to spend our time either studying empirical facts or constructing values. But like Dewey, Kaplan's effort was a third way, to engage in a practice of transvaluation that belonged both to, to the study of the world and to our moral life. Second example, again, just brief examples from each one for the conservative movement. This will be a little longer because I like it more. Um, Max Kedushin's conservative pragmatism. Max Kedushin was Kaplan's close collaborator in the earliest years of what would become the Reconstructionist movement. Sharing in American pragmatism's critique of the abstractive turn in modern philosophy as well as classical theology, they both promoted an action-oriented and reformatory model of religious thought and institution building. Sharing, furthermore, in the Jewish Theological Seminary's historical approach to rabbinic scholarship, they both reread the sages' religious practices as tokens of the underlying values of Torah, if you recall, the transportable values. Um, uh, and they both identified these values as guidelines for renewing and reforming Jewish behavior in ways responsible to our actual context of life. But they parted ways, however, Kaplan and Kedushin did, over the authority of classical rabbinic practice as a standard for this renewal and reform. For Kedushin, Kaplan conceded too much to the modern context of Jewish life, revaluing classical Judaism in the image of modernity rather than translating it into that. For Kedushin, indeed, we might understand God's actions in new ways but God remains Hashem, Borei Olam, creator of the universe, not a power for salvation. Historical scholarship might warrant our reinterpreting what it means to act halachically in our age, 
but the halachot remain commandments, mitzvot, not instruments of Jewish self-realization. In this terms, you could say Kedushin might sound like a traditionalist and Kaplan a modernist, but we can make more sense of these differences if we ascribe them to two different forms of American pragmatism, both pragmatic, reflecting Jewies, uh, Dewey's <laughs> When Kaplan becomes a Jewish thing, we're going to call him Jewy, right? John Jewy. <laughs> Reflecting Jewy, Jewy's um, naturalism, and in this sense, anticipating the neo-pragmatists, um, Kaplan displayed an Emersonian and humanistic pragmatism that authorizes the individual human being to be the source of its own criteria for revaluing uh, received traditions. Perhaps in Ken's way, we'll see. More in the spirit of Charles Peirce and Josiah Royce, okay, Max Kedushin practiced a theocentric pragmatism, which the neo-pragmatists have totally out of touch with, I have to say, according to which the individual human being makes only a partial contribution to his her, or her own axiology. In this view, revaluation is authored by the language community, not the individual, but through its relation to ever wider circles of existence. And one debate I, I didn't hear this morning was we're focusing on decisions about individual autonomy. I didn't hear about the autonomy of, of one's relational circles, and I wish we had. I think that's, um, that relieves us of the irresolvable contradictions that come when you focus on individuals. Anyway, I think. Like Peirce, Kedushin argued that religious thinkers from the first century to the 20th have been misguided by the ontological drift in Hellenic philosophy. One consequence of this drift is what we might call propositionalism, the errant assumption that the division of most Indo-European sentences into subjects and predicates, cat is black, corresponds to a division of reality itself into sub sub substantive things, cats, and the qualities that may be predicated of them, black. Kedushin argued that this assumption led both Jewish and non-Jewish interpreters to misrepresent classical rabbinic literature as non-rational because midrashic interpretation, which for him is a prototype of rabbinic reason, fails to divide the world this way into things and predicates. Like Peirce, Kedushin recognized a sphere of language use that is well served by modern propositional language. It's everyday requests to pass the salt. If you're at a table and you say, please pass the salt, you hope that you're going to use subject-object sentences and they will work. There isn't an attempt here to get rid of propositional languages. It's to say that talking about the salt is not an adequate model for talking about God or our values, for heaven's sake. We need a different logic when we address those issues. In the issues of ultimate values, judgments are not about something immediately at hand, but they also introduce with them, each of them introduces broader concerns about the very rules we use to identify what is at hand. In other words, when you're dealing with values, each of your judgments is not simply what is that, but each judgment, each judgment is resituating your relationship to how do I talk about a that and a this and a me each time? So a propositional clarity cannot be adequately a model 
for a judgment that not only observes about things, but continually redefines our ways of talking about things. And that's what's so difficult about values. They call us to attention, not just about the world we see, but each moment about who we are and what world we're looking at. Well, that's incredibly difficult. That's the reason why modern philosophy ignores it. It's just too hard. Well, how is it possible to engage in such a thing, to engage in judgments which every sentence demands of us? Profound reflection on not only what's there, but how we're looking at what's there. I don't, can't give you a general answer. I don't know there is a general answer, but I can identify what Kedushin believes it is. He says, why do you think we pray so much? Why do you think we devote, as philosophers who are engaged in that kind of religiosity, we devote our energy so hard to philosophizing out of prayer, in prayer, that is in reference to the creator of the universe? Because we don't know, we individuals who do this kind of philosophy, any other way to retain our sanity and clarity and make sense unless every time we make such a judgment, it's not in the text, every time we make such a judgment, we draw on the capacity of the only one who could enable us to do that, the creator of the universe and the one who gave us Torah. In other words, every judgment we make in a philosophy of values must be a prayerful judgment. That's not an a priori statement. It's, a, it's an identification of the problem. If we do not have a creator of the universe to guide us, we're going to end up with two possibilities, the two that Europe always battled about back and forth we're either going to end up with human claims for universal rational clarity, the errant side of Kantianism, the presumption that we can clarify dogmatically in the end laws of identity and laws of knowing ethics. That is, we end up with unjustifiably universalized statements of the character of truth. Or we become relativists and we say, well, I do it this way. The only alternative and the only route out of the European dilemma is a root out of humanism. It's to acknowledge that the presence of God is not just an addition, an addendum, an existential characteristic of our being philosophers. It's to recognize that relation to God is a presupposition for every judgment that is more than past assault. Kedushin's interest then was, like Kaplan, to recognize how to transvalue what he felt was a prototype of making rational judgments that come out of our relationship to God, which is rabbinic midrash. Well, how do we do that? How does that actually guide reasoning and not just fideism? He says, well, we have to transvalue what they, their judgments they made, bring those values to our American environment. And he called the transportable dimensions of rabbinic thinking value concepts and spent much of his time showing how those concepts were both conceptual, that is, they stand up to tough philosophic analysis, not a biggie. I mean, it is hard to do, but we don't write it off the court. At the same time, they are valuational. They're in the, they come out of the relational environment of actual Jewish life in response to God's presence. We can do this, he said, but we can't do it if we use the European logics propositional logics or their denial. And instead, he borrowed, a, he claimed it was Whitehead, but if you read him carefully, the logic that he used with Peirce's, he used Peirce's logic, which I advertise to you only with one sentence for now, is that Peirce's logic, though, you know, developed through the beginning of the, 20, of the 20th century, 
is basically a, a quantum logic. It's a logic that works very well for, it's a logic of science, for a world of science after Newton. So you have a logic that deals with, like, like Norbert does, deals with, I mean, Norbert's probably the only one who, who does this kind of thing that I know in Jewish thought, who deals with relational logics in science. And Kedushin is saying we have, therefore, a scientifically reliable logic that works for rabbinic thinking. And his value conceptual analysis is, is an attempt to reason, to transport rabbinic values through a logic of relations. And that's the key. I won't go into what it is, but I'll just point to it, that classical pragmatism on the Persian side is grounded in the reliability in science and value studies of a relational logic. Five minutes? Yeah. Number three. Eliezer Berkowitz's orthodox pragmatism. While Berkowitz is not usually associated with the pragmatist philosophers per se, I can't imagine that David Hazoni wasn't thinking about Berkowitz's pragmatism when he redacted his wonderful collection of Berkowitz's essential essays on Judaism. The overall thrust is pragmatic of the Persian stripe. For one, Berkowitz offers a lively defense of halachic Judaism as the appropriate consequence of an action-oriented epistemology. Peirce's pragmatic maxim wasn't a word that we know anything only by observing how it behaves in our world. Berkowitz extends that kind of understanding to our knowledge of God. How do we know God? There have been sages, he claims, know God by his acts in this world. Take, for example, the medieval philosopher Nachmanides' favorite reading of Eyei Asher in Exodus 3, um, I will be what I will be. He says, unlike Maimonides, who defines it essentialistically, he says, this is the name that simply says, am I not known according to my acts? You will know me as I am there. This means, for one, that we have no unmediated cognition of the divine life itself, the way Ken, and like Ken said. But there is religious experience of God, however, but we experience God in God's actions. The written Torah displays God speaking directly to Israel, and we know God only by adjusting our actions to God's. This, adjust, this adjustment, adjustment is displayed and guided by the halakha. If I am Torah true, you will see this by the way I act. In a word, Berkowitz is not simply an apologist for halachic orthodoxy, but he examines the halakha as the means through which rabbinic practice, as it's actually practice, is transportable to today. And the only profound difference, I think, in his pragmatism and, let's say, Kedushin's, is that Kedushin will allow us to, through a kind of phenomenological work, talk about the value and then reinstitute halachic behavior here. And Berkowitz, surprisingly, like Borowitz, the reform thinker, I'll conclude with briefly, um, Berkowitz argues that we can't trust human reasoning to abstract values from an ancient to a contemporary environment. We have to allow the specific injunctions of practice to be their own transportation route. How do you do that? You wait for the contemporary rabbinic community to reinterpret um, through case law, in a sense, how to reenact those laws. But if you read through Berkowitz's justification for that, I think you'd be surprised to see how profoundly consistent he is with the pragmatic rules more generally obeyed by Kaplan and Kedushin. Finally, to complete my argument, I want to suggest that all of the American denominations have an important thinker who's deeply bred on American-based pragmatism. So the issue is not denominational. 
The issue is moving across the ocean and starting our life here. The last one is the um, reform thinker, Gene Borowitz, and, and I'll just offer a, a, few, a few comments on him. Some of you may know Eugene Borowitz as a Kantian thinker, as a reform thinker for whom the notion of autonomy, the self and freedom, um, is a um, unchangeable ideal in liberal Jewish life. In the last 15 years or so, Gene has written books like Renewing the Covenant in which he argues that that's true, but he's learned to modify his Kantian ideals. And you might see that with him, reform practice is often modified as well. His goal, I think, is largely pragmatic, um, recognizing that Jewish practice cannot be abstracted from out of the way Jews practice. I think you can read his book, Renewing the Covenant, as another effort by another American rabbinic pragmatist to teach us another way to transport values from the rabbinic nexus to American life today. And I think the only difference in practice between Borowitz and Berkowitz is not in their pragmatism, is not on their concern for transportation, and it's not on their interest in halakha. It's simply on the notion of autonomy. And I'll, I'll, I'll close with this. Jean, um, has had many, I've overheard many debates between Gene Borowitz and David Novak on the question of autonomy. Everybody has a, a, an ongoing debate with David about something. Um, on this one, David argues to Gene, why do you have to keep the, the term autonomy? You don't even mean it. Gene answered back early on, I do, because if you don't have the term autonomy, you have something like what, what Ken was concerned about, the imposition of, of a rule without my consent. But in his, if you look at his recent writings, He's re um, Gene retain Borowitz retains the term autonomy, but he says, I'm talking about the autonomy of a Jewish self, not a generic self, or not a transcendental ego, in a Kantian sense. And what is a Jewish self? He says, it's a self who is always already engaged and bound by a Jewish covenant, who's already engaged and bound by relationships and obligations to other Jews. It's not, an auto it's not a separate self. That is, it's simply a focus. That person is a nexus of relations in a Jewish community. And that person does not just act heteronymously, but has judgment. Well, if you think about a person acting that way, then that person is also acting on behalf of all of his or her relations and on behalf of her people. Well, that kind of autonomy is simply the autonomy of Israel in relation to God. And on that, I think all four of these rabbinic thinkers would agree. Thank you. So I'm batting cleanup for this session. Are you still with us? Uh, First of all, I'd like to uh, extend my thanks to Alan for this uh, wonderful invitation uh, to the James Madison Program, the Department of Religion here, and the Finkelstein Institute for their support of this program. Uh, it's really a great honor to be in included in this, uh, in this group. Uh, it's a surprise to find out that there is a group uh, that there is a movement 
a, a renaissance of Jewish philosophy in America. I, uh, I guess I didn't realize until I came and saw the posters and the, you know, the, the and the program and, and with all its formality, that there must be something happening. Uh, now, I, I did look at our instructions, and as an academic, you look for models uh, to try to help you determine how to prepare something for, for a given occasion. And uh, the model that I came up with is the kind of statement that we're asked to write when we prepare tenure and promotion cases for ourselves as academics. We're asked and invited to say something about our academic career and our research program and where we have come and where we're going. Uh, so what I'm going to do is, is tell you a little bit about uh, what I think I've accomplished. My discussion is not completely akin to uh, a tenure or promotion statement because I am going to try to emphasize something about the relationship between my work and the American context that is certainly mine. I really don't think that I can be separated from the times uh, in which I grew up and in which I was educated, the 60s and the early 70s. I can't be separated from the transformations in Jewish life and American life that affected me uh, nor can I be separated very cleanly from the places that I studied and the people uh, whom I studied with and from whom I learned so much and to whom I suppose uh, I'm always responding. In my remarks, I've largely excluded historical and cultural background in favor of focusing on intellectual influences and... Uh, intellectual influences of a particularly American kind, I hope. For three decades, my thinking about Judaism and Jewish philosophy turned on what might be called the problem of historicity. That problem concerns the relationship between thought and history. It addressed the question, is thought transcendent? Or to what degree and in what ways is thought essentially historical? Thought, to me, included scientific theory, moral principles and convictions, metaphysical and other philosophical claims, and religious beliefs or doctrines. History included historical events, human experiences, and actions of all kinds. The problem of historicity asks of such modes of thought whether they are thoroughly and unqualifiedly immersed in the conditions of human action and experience, or whether there might be some thoughts, some claims we make, some principles we hold that are timeless and general. Now, I was not driven to this interest primarily by worries about the nature of rationality and scientific reasoning, or by Quine's attack on the a priori and the distinction between empirical and non-empirical knowledge or, or truths. Nor was I drawn to it by the relativist implications of historiography and anthropology. The importance of the issue arose for me in a religious setting. 
of particular interest was the character of Jewish beliefs and Jewish self-understanding and how a responsible exposure of such beliefs to the events of the Holocaust led some theologians to reconsider the historical nature of Jewish belief. Not only to reconsider the content of particular beliefs, but also to reconsider the very status of those beliefs. In short, I wondered if one outcome of the Holocaust and taking it seriously intellectually, taking it seriously philosophically and theologically, was not a revised estimate of what might be called the transcendence of thought. The study of a number of figures led me to these worries. The most notable, perhaps no surprise to those who know anything about what I've written, the most notable of these influences was Emil Fackenheim, for whom the issue of the historicity of religious thought and philosophy was, I would argue, a central preoccupation in his early years, particularly the 1950s and early 1960s. As early as 1968, Fackenheim acknowledged that the central moment in his philosophical career came when he realized that he could no longer claim, as he had in 1964, that religious faith is, to use old terms that he used, verifiable by history and human experience, but never refutable by them. He, at one point in an article of 1964, said that to the Jew, God is his existential a priori. What Fackenheim had in mind very clearly in 1968 was the impact of the reality of Auschwitz on philosophical and religious beliefs. Other figures were Jewish and Christian theologians who tried to confront the horrors of the death camps and to respond with some theological articulation. To many of them, this issue of the very status of our religious beliefs and philosophical concerns in the face of extraordinary atrocity and human suffering was of central concern. But I was also led to think about these issues by other influences, by Thomas Kuhn and the swirl of response to his claims about the historicity and political character of scientific theories, by E.D. Hirsch, Stanley Fish, and other literary critics, so many of them influenced by Gadamer, and by questions about the hermeneutics of textual interpretation, by Ronald Dworkin and debates about legal interpretation, by the exchange between Alistair McIntyre and Peter Winch about anthropology, ethnography, and the incommensurability of languages and problems of translation, and by the emergence of a tendency in philosophy and political philosophy to treat philosophy itself as historical. I'm thinking of the work of Alistair McIntyre and Richard Rorty and Charles Taylor in the late 70s, and by similar work done by Quentin Skinner, John Dunn, J.G.A. Potok, and the so-called Cambridge School of Political Theorists. Now, this issue of historicity, for me, dictated how I thought any serious Jewish philosophy would have to be conducted.
it would have to be sensitive to those contextual or situational features that most influenced a contemporary sense of what was important and urgent, and also to be sensitive to reading the past in terms of those contextual factors that make past texts and actions meaningful and intelligible. Only then could Jewish philosophy, and indeed philosophy in general, ask what significance the past could have for the present, what of the past could be recovered, and what should be recovered, and what access the present could have, the present could have to the past. By about two, the year 2000 or so, I had come to think that insofar as thinking is unavoidably hermeneutical and historically situated, it would find itself constantly wrestling with the implications some might draw that it is also relative and qualified. Indeed, that there is no objectivity. And this would hold for science as much as for ethics, for religious thought and deed for philosophy and much more as well. As time had gone by from when I began to think seriously about Jewish matters, and postmodernism had become an expression, a kind of collective expression, for a host of tendencies among which was a radical pluralism and relativism, I had become convinced that from the late 19th century and throughout the 20th, what I call the problem of objectivity had been at the center of philosophical debates and much of Western intellectual culture in general. In a short book called Interim Judaism, I wrote about various engagements with this problem of objectivity, engagements that took place early in the century in Europe, from George Zimmel to Lukács to Musil, Bart, Benjamin, and a host of others, and then in America again after the Holocaust. The problem of objectivity raises the question whether there are any principles or ideals that are permanent, fixed, and secure, or whether indeed all are not historically, culturally, socially, or even personally conditioned and conditional. If one thinks that there are or ought to be such principles or truths or ideals, what gives them their authority? What is the ground of their objective status? Is that ground to be found in nature or in rationality or rather in some connectedness with transcendence? This, it strikes me, it struck me in 2000 and I'm still thinking about it, it strikes me is the great question of the 20th century and it remains so to this very day. In the early part of the century in Europe, the problem of objectivity arose as a consequence in part of the development of historiography and the study of cultures. It was associated then with figures like Nietzsche, Diltai, Windelbant, Trelch, and a host of others. Terms like relativism and nihilism were associated with the lack of secure and firm principles or values. The problem was called by some the crisis of historicism. By others, it was called the problem of alienation. 
Now, my own thinking about these issues continues to draw on European philosophical and theological figures. Rosenzweig and Levinas preeminent among them, but also Lukács, Benjamin, Wittgenstein. But I recently have come to appreciate the important ways in which these same issues have emerged in Anglo-American philosophy of the past several decades, in English-speaking philosophy, and have been thus re-articulated and clarified. Let me say something about how this is so for several figures whose work, I think, has untapped significance for Jewish philosophy. Charles Taylor, Hilary Putnam, and especially Stanley Cavell. If there were time